0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey Adapters, welcome back to a very special episode. This is the second of a two-part series I'm doing with the Nantucket Conservation Foundation and the Trustees of Reservations, two land conservation organizations based in Massachusetts, who together jointly own and manage the Cascada-Kotu Wildlife Refuge on the island of Nantucket. In the first episode, we learned some surprising things about the history and wildlife of Nantucket, including an interview with world-famous author Nathaniel Philbrick a resident of the island. Definitely go back and listen to that episode. The link is in my show notes. This episode will focus on how these two organizations are helping the refuge adapt to climate change. We'll dive into the science that drives their adaptation planning, and we'll learn the challenges to integrate adaptation into a conservation organization's goals and strategies. First, let me paint a picture of this unique property. The refuge is a barrier beach system which juts out into the Atlantic Ocean, forming the northernmost point of the island and wrapping back as the protective barrier beach for Nantucket's harbor. Its 1,452 acres account for approximately 5% of the island's total landmass. This series is part of the project's first phase to broadly communicate and illustrate both the beauty and challenges unique to this special place. This podcast is being sponsored by an anonymous donor as part of an ongoing project between the Nantucket Conservation Foundation and the trustees to confront the climate-driven challenges faced by the refuge. This was a fascinating opportunity for me to talk with people from Nantucket, a place so many of us hear about and how that island is adapting to climate change. Okay, first off is Karen Beatty, the Director of Science and Stewardship at the Nantucket Conservation Foundation. Let's go adapt with Nantucket Island. Hey, adapters! I'm here with Karen Beatty. Karen is the director of science and stewardship at the Nantucket Conservation Foundation. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Doug. Thanks so much for having me. All
0: right, we're going to talk science there at the refuge. But first off, what are you responsible for there at the foundation? If it isn't obvious enough from your title,
1: <laughs> well, I'm the director of the science and here at the Nantucket Conservation Foundation. And we have a staff of five full-time year-round um, scientists that work for our organization. And then we also hire a couple of seasonal staff to help us with our fieldwork. And we do a whole range of different projects, both on and off the refuge. The Conservation Foundation owns 9,000 acres of land on Nantucket. So we have a lot of different habitats that we work with, a lot of different species. And primarily what we do is we do science. But the science that we do is aimed at giving us information on how to better manage our property. so it's very very management focused. Our staff has a wetlands ecologist named Jen Carberg, a wildlife biologist, Danielle Odell. Kelly Omond is our botanist and then Libby Buck is our research technician um, and that pretty much makes up our science department here at NCF. Yes, we are very science committed our board and they they understand the importance of using science to make management decisions and that's primarily in a nutshell what our science and stewardship department does.
0: So you're there on Nantucket Island. What's a typical day for you?
1: Um, A typical day for me really depends on what time of the year it is. In the summer, I do tend to spend a lot of time in the field. Most of our year-round staff, they have certain projects that they really focus on. They're the project leaders for those particular projects. As the director of the department, I have the really fun job of sort of dabbling in all those projects, but not Having to oversee in great detail every single one of them. So I get to learn from them, which is really cool. And I will say that I learn something new pretty much every day. But during the winter time, we do our jobs are very different. We don't have seasonal staff working with us in the winter. So we're pretty much focused on looking at the data we collected the previous field season. And you know, analyzing it and writing reports and preparing for the next field season and learning the lessons from the projects that we've completed and, and turning those lessons into actions that we use to manage our properties better.
0: Okay. I know you can't go into too much detail, but can you just more broadly describe the ecology of the refuge?
1: Well, the ecology of the refuge is a very unique barrier beach system. I'm sure people that you've interviewed prior to this in this podcast have talked a little bit about this, but... The geology is very interesting in that there are cuspate spits that face into Nantucket Harbor that are by a very interesting dynamic between the tide going out and erosion, sort of depositing sand from the tips into the bends. Our barrier beach, I would say, is pretty unique in the Northeast in that it's one of a very few Barrier beaches that are not heavily developed. So if you think of areas like Fire Island on in New York on Long Island that are heavily developed and have a lot of infrastructure on them, our barrier beach is not like that at all. There are just only a couple of cottages, one of which is our ranger station. And so All of the ecosystems that you would find on a barrier beach, the the beach itself, the dune system, the interdune swale, the salt marshes, the coastal shrublands are all pretty intact ecosystems. And that's really interesting. And they support a lot of different rare and endangered species that you don't find in many other places in the Northeast.
0: Okay, on that note, what are some of these special plant and animal species that find in the refuge?
1: I would say the most significant group of rare species that we have would be birds. We have um, this year alone in 2001, we had 10 pairs of piping plovers nest on the refuge just on the Nantucket Conservation Foundation's properties. There were additional pairs of birds that nested on the trustees of reservations part of the refuge we had 14 pairs of American oyster catchers, which are not listed statewide, but they're pretty rare across their range in the Northeast. And in fact, the 14 pairs that we had on NCF property make up only approximately 184 pairs that are found within the entire Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So that's like Roughly 7% of the population of oyster catchers is nesting on NCF properties on the refuge. We also have common terns, least terns, roseate terns that either nest and or use these areas for staging at the beginning and the end of the season. And then there's many, many species of migrating shorebirds that come through in the spring and in the fall. We have an active heronry on the refuge, which hosts great egrets, snowy egrets, black crowned night herons. And this year, for the first time, we had a pair of nesting glossy ibis, northern harriers, which are a rare bird of prey that nest out there. But there's also a number of rare plants. We have one of the northernmost populations of prickly pear cactus, which is like a really strange place to find a cactus. But, you know, it's a dry, sandy spot, kind of similar to the desert. Another species of plant that's found on the beach is sea beach knotweed, which is one of our rare plants. And we have some smooth green snakes on the refuge, which are kind of interesting species that you don't find anywhere else on Nantucket, just um, out there at Cascade Co. Kotu.
0: Okay. So what challenges is the refuge facing from sea level rise and storm surge?
1: Well, as I mentioned earlier, you know, one of the benefits of the refuge we have is that there's not a lot of development on it. And so barrier beaches in general, under normal circumstances with no climate change, no sea level rise, they tend to move. You get erosion on one side and then you get accretion on the other side. And the beach is very dynamic and it kind of shifts and it goes back and forth. And In a barrier beach where there's no development, that's really not a problem because you're not trying to protect infrastructure that has to be in one particular place and can't move. And so up until starting to see the impacts of climate change and sea level rise, you know, the erosion and accretion has kind of been in balance and the barrier beach, even though it shifts and it moves the way barrier beaches do, it's pretty much been stable but now that we're starting to see increased storms, increased sea level rise, that sort of natural balance of erosion and accretion is, is more tipped in the favor of erosion. And we are starting to see portions of the beach that are losing ground, but we're not gaining that ground on the other side to make up for it. Um, and in particular, when you look at the shape of KOTU, it sort of looks like a very delicate fish hook. Within the bends where the beach is at its narrowest, those seem to be the spots that are the most vulnerable, where we're noticing much more frequent flooding events. Things that used to happen during storms that occurred maybe every five or 10 years are now happening on a much more regular basis with even just minor storms and high tides associated with the full moon and storm surges. And the the other thing we're also seeing is um, in regards to our beach nesting birds, Because coastal flooding tends to be more frequent, we're seeing increasing losses of their nests to flooding and erosion and those types of events rather than... It used to be that um, predation from predators was the most common thing that would cause nest loss, but now we're seeing more and more frequently that it's overwash and flooding from storms that's causing nest loss. And that's very concerning because obviously it affects their population numbers.
0: A lot of conservation groups are starting to think about adaptation. Are they developing an adaptation plan? How is it for the foundation? Do you see adaptation as something new that you're doing or are you just modifying the sort of conservation planning that you're doing already? How is adaptation coming into your work?
1: It's definitely something that we're thinking a lot about and have been giving a lot more increased focus to over the last five years or so. As you probably know, we're working in collaboration with the trustees of reservations to do an assessment of some of the most vulnerable sites on our collective properties out there. This is where we're already seeing impacts where we know that. We have a problem that's only going to get worse. So this is, is definitely something that's a priority for us and working with the Woods Hole Group, which is a consulting firm here in Massachusetts. It's widely respected. We are right now in the process of putting an assessment together of what the different options are for us to do possibly some management and mitigation work. Going forward and kind of what the preliminary results of that are showing is that probably the most likely thing that we can do to to affect change in some of these areas are going to be nature based solutions such as sand deposition and also trying to create conditions where salt marsh can migrate inland inland. To help stabilize some of these areas that are really vulnerable so this is definitely something that we're putting a lot of increased focus on we certainly recognize that the refuge itself is not just an ecologically sensitive and special area but it also defines nantucket harbor it's it's what creates nantucket harbor and it's what protects all of the properties that are along the southern shoreline of the harbor from the from Nantucket Sound and also, of course, our, our historic downtown. So, you know, this is something we take seriously and it's something we're spending a lot of time figuring out
0: ways that we can
1: manage this.
0: So, Karen, you have been the at the foundation for a while. How has the science work evolved over that time?
1: The science work has it has evolved quite a bit. At first, we were very acquisition oriented organization. And so most of our work was in regards to acquiring new properties, And at the time that that was happening, there were a lot of properties that were at risk for development. So it was absolutely what the foundation needed to be doing at that time. Um, But then as we grew and became more mature as an organization and acquired more and more property, we started spending a lot more time focusing on the property that we had already acquired and trying to get a better understanding of what we owned and what was significant about what we owned. And when we first started doing targeted research, a lot of it was focused on sampling grassland and coastal heath habitats because they're one of the rarest types of habitats that we have on Nantucket. And so we were look, looking a lot into managing those areas because if you don't manage them, then trees come in and they become overgrown with woody shrubs. So that was something that we were focusing on and we. You know, that was sort of our target habitat that we were interested in. and But over time, as we've gained more and more information about the different types of species that we have on our properties, it's become more and more apparent to me that it's very, very important to maintain representatives of the rare habitats, but also a nice mosaic of all the different types of habitats that you have on the Antucket Antip- because there are different species that need different things. A lot of the rare species that are associated with our grasslands You know, can't thrive in a forest. But then we just recently found out that we have a relatively healthy population of northern long eared bats here on Nantucket, and bats are not doing well in the rest of the the United States because of white nose syndrome. So the bats need the forest, the rare plants need the grasslands, the shorebirds need the beaches. And so we've been focusing more and more on creating that mosaic of habitats that's going to support the greatest diversity of species on our properties. And our management efforts um, on trying to maintain those mosaics.
0: Can you share a hopeful message about the future of the refuge?
1: I think a positive message that I would share is there isn't a lot of infrastructure out there for us to protect. So I think our, to a certain extent, the, the beach is going to change. It's going to move but it's not going to be as much of a problem for us as it would be in other places where there's a lot of houses that you need to protect and so you know we can consider nature-based solutions that will benefit both coastal resiliency and the ecology of the barrier beach and i think another really positive message is that we're we're all starting to come together and work together to address these issues now and To a certain extent, we're a little late, but we're thinking about this now and we're trying to be proactive instead of reactive. And I think that that's an extremely hopeful way to look at this is we're trying to prepare our property to receive the rising seas rather than trying to defend it once the sea has already risen.
0: Okay, Karen, thank you for coming on the podcast and thanks for what you're doing there.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed speaking with you.
0: Hey adapters, I'm here with Shay Fee. Shay is the Southeast Coastal Ecologist for the Trustees of Reservations. Hi, Shay. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So, what do you do with the trustees?
2: So as their coastal ecologist, I have a couple different responsibilities, but one of my major roles is to be in charge of our shorebird protection program, both on Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. So that takes up a lot of my time during the summer months, but I also am involved in just basically keeping an eye on the ecology of our various properties, doing things like plant surveys and songbird um, surveys.
0: Okay. How long have you worked at the trustee's?
2: So this will be my fifth year with them. I started as a shorebird technician on Nantucket for them in 2017, but I am new to this role this year.
0: Very exciting. So ecologically speaking, what makes the refuge so special?
2: First of all, it's just a beautiful example of a barrier beach. And also particularly down on Two, that particular peninsula has these neat geological features called cuspid spits, which only occur in, I think, two other places in the world. So really unique in that way. The refuge itself holds Nantucket's largest salt marsh, which is pretty impressive at about 300 acres. And one of the state's largest red cedar maritime forests down on Two as well as a significant population of prickly pear cactus, which is one of the largest in the state. So that's kind of a a fun fact, but maybe most importantly provides a ton of habitat for a number of rare species, whether it be bird, insect, or, or plant. So it's pretty unique in that way
0: let's talk about some shorebirds. And so I want you to identify a few of the species there. I know you can't identify them all, but and what makes for a thriving population?
2: Sure. So a couple of the focal species that we look after, one is the piping plover. A lot of people may be aware of this bird. It's sort of the poster child for shorebird conservation. And then another one we look after is a least tern. And so the least tern is considered in the state of Massachusetts, a species of special concern. And the piping plover is considered a threatened species. So there's varying degrees of protection there. But what goes into a thriving population, I would say just basically giving these populations an opportunity to reach certain recovery goals that have been set for them as far as productivity. So productivity means basically how many chicks each of these breeding pairs is producing. And the federal government as well as the state government has set certain goals to reach for productivity. It's about 1.5 chicks per pair. So creating conditions that allow pairs to be successful and therefore contribute to the population and have it be sustainable. That can mean any number of things. I mean, we can provide them space to nest, spaces to forage and rear their chicks, as well as safe spaces for them to stage and get ready to migrate.
0: You talked about some of those standards for nesting and such, but what are some of the other state and federal guidelines there to protect the birds?
2: Sure. There's a a whole laundry list of things we do that we refer to as guidelines, but they're really best management practices in order to protect these birds and ensure their success. As far as nest protection goes, early in the season, so in late March, early April, we fence off potential habitat. So, you know, once you're trained as a shorebird tech, you get to know what nesting habitat looks like. These birds prefer a certain type of beach with certain features. So you'll fence that off to protect it from either vehicles or pedestrians And it allows the bird space to set up where they want to set up. And then they'll sort of, they'll put down their eggs and we'll closely monitor where they're nesting and how they're doing and make sure they have enough space to do what they need to do without being disturbed by humans, essentially. And then after chicks hatch, we also keep track of the broods very closely. We do a lot of work on the beaches, educating people about the chicks and how to act around them, as well as monitoring where they go. And if we need to sort of shift these buffer zones, so to speak, to give the chicks enough space to do what they need to do and to fledge eventually.
0: So some of these species are actually protected in varying degrees, but how is the population on Nantucket Island? Is it a thriving, healthy population? or you see it decreasing?
2: I mean, it's an interesting question. We see variation from year to year. I'd say it's relatively stable. We're not seeing huge fluctuations as far as number of pairs that show up. I know this year there was a slight increase in pairs, which might've been a result of a successful breeding season a couple years ago. And now we're sort of seeing these chicks mature And they're looking for new areas to nest. We've seen similar trends on Martha's Vineyard this year. So it'll be interesting to see statewide if if that is, in fact, a trend that we're seeing.
0: So with migratory species, you have to worry about the birds, what they're doing in the other seasons. And so do you know where your birds end up in the opposite season?
2: Well, it's hard to say because most of the birds we're dealing with on Nantucket are not banded. And so that's one of the main ways people in my field keep track of the movements of these birds throughout the year. So a lot of birds elsewhere, they have what's called plastic field-readable bands or flags, and it's basically a way to identify an individual. You know, individuals either have a certain band-color combo or alphanumeric code that corresponds to that individual. And so that depends on people reciting that bird along its migratory journey so you know they might breed on Nantucket and then they'll leave and you know say early September and someone just happens to see that bird in New Jersey as it starts heading south and then someone sees it in Florida and then it's recited in the Bahamas Hmm. so we don't know exactly where most of our birds go on Nantucket because like I said we don't really have many that are banded Oyster catchers are sort of a different story. A lot of the oyster catchers that nest on island are banded and get recited all throughout the eastern seaboard. I think one of our most recent chicks we banded showed up in Mexico last year, which is pretty exciting. But I know a lot of plovers do overwinter in places like the Bahamas. That's a pretty popular spot for them.
0: Smart birds. So what are some of the bigger challenges facing the shorebirds on Nantucket Island? What are you most concerned about?
2: Yeah, I mean... The challenges plovers face on Nantucket are not unique to Nantucket. This is something the whole entire population is facing. And so the biggest threat is habitat loss, whether that be from development or changes to the shoreline in response to rising sea levels and climate change. You know, we could lose a lot of historic nesting habitat as sea levels rise, as beaches erode, things like that. But with more frequent and more intense storms, That can cause blowouts in dune areas, which plovers love. So, we could see more habitat, new habitat being created in the short term. In the long term, I think we'll just see an overall loss of habitat, unfortunately. And so, I think that's one of the biggest threats. Another threat that we sort of have a little bit more control over is sort of human wildlife interaction in terms of disturbance. So, You know, like I said, keeping those buffer zones around important nesting, feeding and staging areas is going to be huge, especially as habitat for these species shrinks.
0: So as a ecologist, you know, there's things that you learn and you study and you do, but just climate change is just becoming this emerging issue. Are you reading about how maybe other coastal areas, other islands are adapting to climate change? Is that something that's coming on your plate more?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm here on Martha's Vineyard. We're dealing with a lot of the same issues that Nantucket is dealing with, and most coastal communities. It's been good. We've been sort of working collaboratively with a lot of different organizations to try to figure out what can be done, what strategies are working, you know, ones that have implemented that are working, what sort of strategies are being developed. So yeah, it's definitely, it's not unique to Nantucket. It's not unique to New England. This is something we're dealing with globally.
0: Do you find you get opportunities to talk about these issues of climate change and what it might mean for the shorebird population with people that live on the island?
2: Yeah, absolutely. People are always interested in the shorebirds. And that ultimately turns into a conversation about how our beaches are changing and and what that means for both the visitor as well as the birds and the wildlife. So yeah, just day to day, we definitely have these conversations, which is great.
0: So do you have a favorite shorebird?
2: Oh, that that is a tough question, but I I really got to say the piping plover. There is nothing more adorable than a freshly hatched plover chick.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Can you share a hopeful message about the future of the refuge?
2: Yeah, I think in regards to Nantucket, you know, Nantucketers have always sort of prided themselves on being adaptive and resourceful and resilient. And I think that we'll meet this challenge with those attributes in mind. And I have faith that we'll be able to come up with some creative solutions to dealing with Rising sea levels and climate change. We are already working with various partners, like I said, to try to come up with ways to preserve access to the refuge and to preserve habitat for various species. I think, you know, we will see a lot of change and that's inevitable, but I'm confident we can preserve very important parts of the refuge, preserve public access to the refuge, and ultimately preserve our way of life. On Nantucket as a whole, we definitely have to be creative and we have to act fast because we are, you know, changes upon us. And we are seeing changes.
0: Wilshay, thank you so much. You're doing great work there. If I manage to get to the island, I hope to look you up and maybe we can go out and do a little bit of bird watching while we're there.
2: Absolutely. Looking forward to it.
0: Hey, adapters. I'm here with Cecil Barron Jensen. Cecil is the executive director of Remain Nantucket and the primary sponsor of the Envision Resilience Nantucket Challenge. Hi, Cecil. Welcome to the podcast.
3: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: Great. You guys are doing some really exciting work. Looking forward to sharing it. But first, how about a little bit of background here? What is Remain Nantucket?
3: Remain Nantucket is a island Nantucket-based organization that is part of a bigger family foundation. And our primary work is either charitable, or venture related with a focus on bringing vitality to the downtown. And we work within projects that are focused on environment, the economy of the downtown and social cultural vitality.
0: Just yourself, how long have you lived on Nantucket?
3: I moved to Nantucket in 1996.
0: Okay, so you have been there for a while. Fantastic. So you've obviously probably even recognized maybe some of the changes that are happening on the island and that you're working on
3: absolutely absolutely and sea level rise is one that everybody is talking about this the last 2 years it's just really hit as a primary concern for for the whole island but specifically for the downtown
0: well then you teed me up just perfectly here so let's let's talk about how you're dealing with sea level rise and let's learn about envision resilience nantucket challenge what is it
3: envision resilience is a really fascinating way to respond to the fear that a lot of people have with sea level rise. So the, the inspiration for it started back in 2019 when the Nantucket Preservation Trust hosted a conference called Keeping History Above Water. And the whole island was presented with these really phenomenal images of the town, the buildings that we know and love, superimposed with the uh, predictions of water for the downtown. And frankly, everybody sort of reacted in sort of fear and horror. And we at Remain wanted to do something that would empower people to feel sort of like they could do something about it, that we don't just have to sit back and wait for the water to come or, as I like to say, stick our heads in the soggy sand. Instead, what we did was we ran this really great challenge for five leading universities to come up with imaginative, envisioned responses to the sea level rise around the harbor of Nantucket. So if you picture Nantucket, there's Brant Point at one end, and Washington Street and the creeks at the other. And that harbor area, we're predicting up to nine feet of water by the year 2100. Wow. So it's pretty significant. So we divided it up into three study areas and we invited these five universities to participate. And they came up with the most extraordinary designs. It was a, we ran it as a design studio. So it was a semester long class. So, we partnered with the faculties and the departments to have the students be working independently with their professor, but also engage with us by having Wednesday night lecture series and meeting with local advisors using our local maps and information so that they were really, even though it was the pandemic and we had to run it all virtually, they were able to be as up to date on what Nantucket is facing in terms of sea level rise through this semester. So that is at the heart of Envision Resilience, but we actually had three primary goals for the program the first is to we wanted to see if we could run this really amazing design studio which of course I've just described and it was amazing and the kids the students were just phenomenal then the second was to run a community wide engagement program so we everything that we did with the students was available through our website so even when we were running these amazing wednesday night lectures for the students the the community could participate and then the then we did a public presentation of of the work that the students did and we're running an exhibition this summer in the downtown within in um in one of the buildings owned by the Nantucket Historical Association and that is where visitors can come in and actually see visualizations prepared by the students on the walls of the the building so it's that's a really Awesome piece of it. But we're doing lectures and other community outreach projects as well. And then the final third piece of Envision Resilience is an opportunity to survey our community because we want to see where we are at the beginning of Envision Resilience and then a year later at the end. And what we're hoping to capture is a deeper sense of empowerment by our community. So instead of saying, oh my God, so much water is coming. It, they're now, I'm hoping by the end of it, they'll say, yes, the water's coming, but it doesn't have to scare me. And I think I can do something about it. And so that's kind of the goal. I guess if we if we had a reason to do it, I think it's really to allow people to imagine that they can work with adaption, adaptation in their homes and properties.
0: The Keeping History Above Water, that was sort of the catalyst for all this, but there wasn't some previous template for Envision Resilience. They didn't do it somewhere else. You guys kind of just created this from scratch.
3: Yeah, we did. We dreamt it up. And I have to say that it was one of my bright ideas. And I had previously worked with an arts organization on Nantucket, and I was always really impressed by what creative people could do. With a challenge, you know, so whether, so back, if I was working with artists, I'd say, okay, well, this is the challenge, we want everybody to paint your vision of this stretch of the waterfront, and they would come back with all these unique takes on it. So I originally thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to see if artists could do this, and we would give them enough science background for them to reimagine the what the harbor could look like. But I presented that idea to a couple of friends, including the two advisors for Envision Resilience, Bob, Bob Miklos and Marty Hilton. And they both were like, yeah, that's a really awesome idea, but I think we should get design and architecture and landscape students involved because they'll be used to being given a challenge like this and to be, and they will be able to create something that not only reflects, you know. The skills that students in this, in these areas will have, but it will all, they'll also be able to take in the science, make it really significant. And we're, it's not just going to be a, a sort of superficial first pass at understanding it and then turning your imagination loose. It'll be an in-depth study.
0: I really like some of the words that you're using. I mean, first off, envision, but then you just mentioned earlier, imagine you're using some rhetoric that you don't typically hear in the adaptation space. Most of the time, I don't think it's doom and gloom like it is maybe on the carbon mitigation side, but it's still more mundane. It's like risk management, risk mitigation. And so you have these very interesting words that I'm sure you're very strategic in wanting to use in the first place.
3: No, you're absolutely right. I I think that there's something that, so the founder of Remain Nantucket is Wendy Schmidt, and she said, you have to be able to imagine something before you can do it. And that's exactly what Envision Resilience is all about. So if we're challenging our community to come up with uh, ways to adapt their own properties, it's all well and good to say, well, you need to make sure you've got Forest surfaces and that you plant rain gardens, and you might consider a living shoreline. And all of those things, as you know, are beautiful, beautiful solutions to a very wet problem. But if they can't picture it, then they're not going to understand it. Those words are just words or descriptions that they have to look up and ask their landscaper about. This way, we're giving them something that the students' designs are stunningly beautiful and incredibly different one from the other, but they are very practical in the end. And so I think the idea of encouraging people to reimagine their own future with more water, I think that's where the magic happens with this program.
0: Okay. So just a bit more information from like under the hood of what's going on there. So you have a advisory board and then you, you, you'd mentioned sort of just quickly that there was a lecture series. And so the, the Envision resilience probably kind of took on a life of its own too, because you know, you had the original challenge in the studio work, but could you just briefly, what's the purpose of the advisory committee? And then like the speaker series, what were you hoping to accomplish and maybe toss out a couple names who participated?
3: Oh, sure. The reason we started with an advisory board and the advisory board is almost 100% local people who are working in this arena. So we have architects, we have planners, we have people who work for the town who are charged with coming up with resilient plans. We have representatives from all of our land and conservation areas that have anything. I mean, honestly, all of them have have something to do with managing the land in face of sea level rise. And, you know, we have educators. So it's, it's a very local-based advisory group. And it was from the conversations with the advisors that we actually started to ourselves understand the priorities for our community and we wanted to give the students access to these advisors. So we set up a regular series of Friday talks with advisors for the students, and that was closed. It wasn't that the general public wasn't invited to those, but the students could come and check in with the advisors one on one or with groups. And, you know, some of the schools used their time with the advisors in very different ways in order to get a sense of our community that they wouldn't necessarily have learned from the rest of the course. So that's how we use the advisors. And then the lecture series, we actually had speakers were, they were recommended by the faculty. So I haven't, I don't think I've even told you the names of the schools that we had involved. We had the University of Florida, the University of Miami, Northeastern, Harvard, and Yale. And so all of the professors affiliated with the schools made recommendations for who would be the best speakers for the students to hear from. And so every Wednesday night, we hosted two speakers and they're all recorded on our website. So anybody can go and listen to them. They're an hour long each. So we did two hours every Wednesday. (laughs) Doug, it was like getting a crash course for all of us because we, meaning the advisors and the remain staff, we were learning right along with the students on topics of uh, everything from engineering to landscape design to community communication. So that if you're working on a project within a community, how to go about and engage the community so that you get some buy-in from the community. We had speakers, but one of the most, I always bring him up because he was my favorite, was a professor at Tulane and his name is Inaki Alday. I don't know if you know him or his work, but he does beautiful, beautiful work on flooding in rivers in Spain. So he has a firm in Barcelona and teaches at Tulane. And he showed us some projects that he's doing in Spain along flooding riverbanks. And I mean, they were just things of absolute beauty. Another speaker was a a wonderful uh, professor from Berkeley named Christina Hill. And she's actually, her background, I think, is in geology. So she's very interested in what, not just the water that's coming, but what's happening in the ground. She was one of the few speakers who actually did a considerable amount of research on Nantucket, and she gave the students her thoughts on what was happening in the harbor, including you know in the in the water around the harbor, the the uh, Kotu, which stretches into the harbor, and then all up facing along the har- the the town and the creeks. But it was such a mix. We also had some speakers who shared other work that they had done in like Washington, D.C. and New York City and Boston the speakers who were involved in coming up with parts of the, the, the work that Mayor Marty Walsh started in Boston on uh, sea level rise. So, oh, and then we also had speakers from the Woods Hole group. So honestly, any part of this that you would say, I don't understand <laughs> one of these speakers was able to answer. And so the students were given this enormous gift of hearing from all of them. And then the other amazing gift that we gave was, again, we used our advisors and our faculty to come up with a really top-notch jury. So in April, at the end of their program, when they were nearing the final design to be passed into the professor for, as a final project. We invited a jury to look at each present. Each group was allowed a presentation with this really impressive jury. It's it's been an exciting project to
0: orchestrate. Yeah, I looked at the speaker series and I actually interviewed about five of them: Christina, Jesse Keenan, A. R. Siders, Lisa Craig. So yeah, you were able to get a nice lineup of adaptation pros. So
3: yeah, and if you scroll through, you'll you'll see the names of the jurors as well in on our website, and it included. I mean, we got Kate Orff, we got Inaki all day, Ann Tate. Anyway, this is an amazing group of people on the jury as well. So it was uh, pretty special for for the students and for
0: us. Cecil, this has been amazing what you guys are doing there. I hope people can they can go to your website. I think your website is actually fabulous. It's easy to follow what's going on, even though this is kind of a very unique project that you're working on. I encourage other communities if they want to sort of a, to do something similar themselves. I think you ha- you have it laid out there. And if you have any other additional recommendations, please share. But I, I want to end this. Can you share a hopeful message about the future of Nantucket? And we're, we're talking about the refuge too. But just you're in all these areas. Can you share a hopeful message?
3: Oh yes, I'd be happy to. I think right now on Nantucket is sort of this amazing sweet time for coastal resilience planning. The town is doing incredible work, being leaders, truly leaders in this area. So they're with in partnership with Lisa Craig, they're coming up with very practical policy-driven a toolkit for how we're going to go through this as a community. Then the Coastal Resilience Advisory Committee is led by this man named Vince Murphy, and his team is doing amazing work at coming up with concrete plans for specific projects across the island. But what I think is really exciting is that the whole community is now talking about it and starting to think about, well, gosh, Maybe I shouldn't be planting a green lawn. Maybe I need to think about something that is a little bit more absorbent and takes less water and chemicals to sustain. Maybe I need to be thinking long-term about how I manage my personal land. And Doug, as you know, that is an imperative because if we're going to, as an island, as as a community, if we're going to be able to withstand nine more feet of water in our downtown, Everybody has to be pulling an oar. So you can't just sit back and say, well, what's the town going to do? What's the, What are the nonprofits going to be doing? It has to be business owners. It has to be homeowners. It has to be everybody who has a footprint on the island. They have to think about their own carbon emissions. They have to think about their own plastic, how they use plastics, and they have to think about how they manage their land. And if we can do all of it together, and if we can imagine a beautiful pathway forward, I think that's the hope. That's where we're going to make a difference. And we're going to be able to withstand the the water that as it's coming, and it is coming, and the rise that we're going to see.
0: Cecil, that was a great message. Thank you for coming on the podcast and thanks for what you're doing. Thank you. Hey, Adapters. I'm here with Dr. Jennifer Carburn. Jen is the research and program supervisor at the Nantucket Conservation Foundation. Hi, Jen. Welcome to the podcast.
4: Hi, Doug. Thank you for having me.
0: First off, what do you do there at the foundation?
4: I work for the foundation in our science and stewardship department, and I help oversee all of our research projects. So the foundation, which you've probably already heard, owns over 9,000 acres on the island. And one of our, really our driving mission, at least in the science department, is to make sure that as we're conserving all these rare habitats and ecosystems and plants and animals on the island, we're doing it with a scientific background. So our science department has a lot of different research projects that we're doing from, you know, monitoring fat populations on the island, looking at how restoration impacts turtles, doing salt marsh restoration. And so I kind of oversee all of the research pieces of that, how we're doing the field work, collecting the data, pulling the data back into the office, and actually hoping to get scientific publications out of the research that we're doing, which we, we have a number of those so far. And then we turn that research around and use it to inform management that we do in future years. So it's kind of this nice uh, research cycle, and I get to help oversee how that all happens happens.
0: We're going to be talking a bit about adaptation resilience. And I found it really interesting how a lot of scientists doing traditional scientists, you're getting dragged into this adaptation discussion. And we're going to talk a bit about that. But I want you to set the sort of groundwork for the KOTU refuge. And we've talked a bit about that. But how has the refuge changed in, in the last five, 10 years? Are you seeing those kind of changes even more recently like that?
4: So we absolutely are seeing shifts out on the refuge and we're really just as far as the research side of it, just beginning the monitoring piece out there. We've had staff on the refuge for many years in kind of a ranger position where we're monitoring all of our rare shorebirds. We're monitoring how people are using the properties, making sure there's not overuse of the property out there. But we're seeing just from having people on the properties Shifts in where our beaches are, shifts in where our open sand is, shifts where vegetation is disappearing, or we're getting sand washing over into our salt marshes. And so we're kind of just seeing a change in what the habitats look like out on the refuge.
0: This is probably coming in front of you quite often, but when you think about adaptation, how is that affecting the work that you're doing? How does that influence the signs that you're generating?
4: Absolutely. I mean, as a restoration ecologist, as someone that's really working and trying to understand the ecology of landscapes and how we manage them, Adaptation is kind of one of our key words, even without thinking about climate change. So adaptation is something we're actually doing almost every day. Nantucket is this landscape that's kind of built on disturbance. It's built on change. The rare species, a lot of the rare plants that we have out here thrive on having change. So a lot of the work that we've done with NCF with our research is figuring out how do we push disturbance to help maintain these really unique things that are on island and As we do the research and figure out what we need to shift with our management, we're honestly doing that adaptive piece all of the time, whether it's in our grasslands or in our coastal areas, in our forests. So this this shift to thinking about adaptation on the coastline as it's changing It's not a big jump for us. It's kind of a natural transition to thinking about the ecology out there.
0: Would you say, and I've had this conversation before, just people are dealing with conservation that they don't necessarily see their work overlapping with what's happening on the adaptation side. And to me, that's almost becoming interchangeable. You have to sort of make those adjustments. And it sounds like, though, it is influencing what what you're doing there on the ground.
4: Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of an interesting way to look at it out here when you learn traditional restoration ecology, you know, in, in any university diversity setting in the United States, at least when I was doing it, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you were learning that you were trying to get an ecosystem back on a trajectory, trying to get it to work the way it used to work before humans interfered with it. And that's really, we're at a point now where with climate change, kind of no matter where you are, coastline or not, you can't get back to that pre-human interference on the landscape. You know, we've, we've just changed things so dramatically. And so instead, we're looking at it from a point of view of we have to adapt. We want our ecosystems to function really well. We want them to be good, biodiverse ecosystems with a lot of different species, be resilient. You know, so how do we adapt our management or what, how do we shift that ecosystem so it can survive a little bit longer into the future? It's, it's kind of a different way of looking at things. But because we're so disturbance based on Nantucket, it really is this natural kind of transition into adaptation.
0: Well, it is a relatively emerging field. Are there Mm -hmm. areas, are there other islands that you look to? You you must just be curious, even in the academic literature, Just are there models that you kind of look to that you're learning from?
4: Oh, definitely. We're always looking to to other islands and honestly, to to the mainland to see what people are doing in other parts. So Martha's Vineyard, We have colleagues. We have colleagues up in the Gulf of Maine. The Gulf of Maine actually puts on really good conferences to talk about how we're interacting in our coastal system. So there have been a great model for us to look to. You know, when you're isolated on an island, you don't have a big university kind of to turn to, to pull different disciplines from. So out here, we're used to reaching out to other groups. And so we've been paying attention to Cape Cod and all of the New England coast, really, because it's the most kind of in, in the same area of what we're working on, similar trajectory of impacts, similar issues that we're seeing across the board and in different places in New England.
0: Okay. I want to pivot a little bit here. And you represent the foundation on the Nantucket Coastal Resilience Advisory Committee. So what is the role of that committee and what do you do on it?
4: Absolutely. So the committee came out of some work that Nantucket as a community did. Back in 2019, we participated in something called the MVP process, a municipal vulnerability program through the state of Massachusetts and actually sat down as a community with representatives from different parts of the island to talk about resilience, to talk about risks, to talk about where we were seeing issues. And one thing that came out of that was that Nantucket town government. So we're an island, we're a town and we're a county all in one. And our government needed to have a way to talk about coastal resiliency in every aspect of what was happening on the island. So the town hired a coastal resilience coordinator, who is Vince Murphy, and then appointed this committee of representatives from different town boards. Um, so we have our representatives from the Conservation Commission. We have representatives from planning. We have representatives from some of the homeowners association, the non-taxpaying members of the island. And then as one of the largest landowners, uh, which is the Nantucket Conservation Foundation, we were tapped to Provide a representative to speak to conservation issues on a large scale. And as I am a wetland ecologist and increasingly a coastal ecologist, that was the role that I've stepped in to fill. And the committee itself, we're, we're overseeing coast resilience for the entire island, helping to bring education to the island, to, to everyone, and represent those issues at a government level. But we're also overseeing the development of a coast resilience plan that is island-wide. So actually bringing in outside consultants to assess the entire island, look at risk and vulnerability from every aspect, from infrastructure to housing, to density, to where our natural resources are to how we access the island. And then from that plan, from that assessment of risks, we're going to be presented with a number of alternatives kind of over the the course of projected climate change sea level rise, basically up to 2100, which is as far as the models go in a year term. And we're then we're going to help the town figure out how do we implement these? What are the most important places to adapt our island? How are we going to pay for it? And how are we going to get these alternatives installed? And that's we're kind of in the middle of the process right now, middle to the end of actually getting a a coastal resilience plan, we're supposed to get it by the end of September. So there's, there's been work so far, but the real and real interesting work is going to start after we have this plan where we have adaptation options to assess and choose from and get our our town to to vote on
0: I'm curious your own personal observation so you're you're part of this committee and you probably get dragged into some of these things because of your expertise but your focus generally is on these natural landscapes and you're thinking about how to yeah. the adapt the refuge what do you think when you look at the built environment all these representatives from the built environment now are now thinking about climate adaptation it must be very interesting for you
4: but is it a fascinating conversation? You know, I, I try and bring the perspective of using natural adaptations on our coastlines that are resilient landscapes that can help buffer some of these climate change impacts. And, you know, of course, out here, the, the biggest climate change impacts are sea level rise flooding and then erosion and looking at ways we can keep our natural areas like our salt marshes and our dune systems, which can be really resilient to climate change, keep them in place, enhance them, even perhaps grow them out in places. And I think we've done a pretty good job of getting that into the conversation. We hear nature-based solutions quite a bit on island. You know, the open space on island is what makes it pretty special and unique to other places. So there's definitely investment in the community and maintaining those natural, beautiful areas. But we're having really interesting conversations about places like our downtown, which is on a harbor and is extremely susceptible already to sea level rise. And how do we adapt that? And we're not necessarily going to be able to put a salt marsh in front of all of it, and it will protect the town from sea level rise into the future. We're going to have to think about combining some, we call the more gray infrastructure, more harder infrastructure to protect areas and hopefully combine it with some green natural resources at the same time. But it's an interesting balance of thinking about the ecology of a system, thinking about the ways people use landscape and the infrastructure that you need to keep in place as a town. We can't retreat anywhere, really. We could We could possibly, with a lot of investment, move some of our infrastructure away from the shoreline but we don't we don't really have much of an inland to go to so we have to consider those hard decisions of what stays natural and how do we protect the things we really need to protect.
0: Well, that is interesting. The nature based solutions that internationally, it's a really huge emerging area. And even here in the United States, the Army Corps of Engineers, the, you know, engineering with nature. And so I think people will be looking to what you're doing on the island, how you kind of make those trade offs, <laughs> right? It's like a seawall versus like, well, maybe there is a wetland approach to this and you'll be in the thick because it's, you're in such a smaller area to make those decisions.
4: Right. And hopefully we'll be able to test out some of those options where we could combine them. And I think that's one of the things that at least we at the foundation are pushing for a lot is, okay, if you're going to have a a seawall, how can you build habitat around that? How can you add, you know, salt marsh area in front of or behind it, depending on where you put it? Or how can you use something like oyster reef that is both hard, you know, a hard reef structure, but also has a living component to it to help buffer your shoreline? And that's actually some research we're working on. Not out on the refuge, but on other another area of the island where we're trying to put in an oyster reef using these concrete oyster castle blocks that are set offshore a little bit and will help buffer our shoreline and maybe even build up some natural areas around it. But the, it also provides habitat for oyster populations to thrive on, which have all sorts of great benefits for the ecosystem.
0: So what's next for you? What's sort of in your immediate vicinity of work that you're doing around this topic?
4: So right now, we're looking at doing some large-scale assessment of our properties. One of our big steps forward is looking at our resilient landscapes that we have on foundation properties. And one of those uh, resilient landscapes are our salt marshes. Salt marshes are really great at buffering storm surge, holding on to rising Waters, they're able to migrate on their own with rising sea level if they're given space to do it. So one of the things we're looking at is categorizing not just where our salt marshes are, but using some modeling scenarios to help understand where those salt marshes want to go with sea level rise and figure out how we can protect and kind of facilitate that movement. Of those natural resilient landscapes um, on our properties and then take what we learn and help share that for other areas of the island as well. That's one of the big things that we're looking at. And then the other is, is out on, particularly on the refuge, one of the first places that we're starting to think about building dune systems. So that's one of our other resilient landscapes we can think about that are natural to the island is, you know, dunes are built up of sand, Sand can be eroded with, you know, storm surges and sea level rise, but the more stable dune systems that you have, the more an area can be protected from sea level rise. So kind of assessing our properties and Kochu is one of them, the refuges is one of them where we're seeing erosion starting to happen and trying to figure out if there are steps we can take to kind of adapt those areas using nature-based solutions to help them last longer in the face of sea level rise and projected erosion.
0: Can you share a hopeful message about the future of the KOTU Refuge?
4: Absolutely. I think that, you know, the KOTU Refuge has been a wild area since the glaciers retreated and Nantucket as an island was formed. You know, it's such a dynamic place with how sand moves and shifts and builds and erodes and creates salt marshes and amongst the dunes. And those have lasted through massive storm events, larger storm surges, driving across our, our sand dunes and, and eroding them away. The CO2 has been there for a long time. And I, I have a lot of hope that even without possible intervention, that how dynamic that system is, it will be able to maintain and shift as our climate shifts around it.
0: Okay, Jan, that was great. You guys are doing some exciting work there on Nanteca, and I appreciate you come on the podcast.
4: Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Cormac Collier. Cormac is the president of the Nantucket Conservation Foundation. Hi, Cormac. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Doug.
5: Thanks for having me back.
0: So I've been talking a lot about adaptation with some of your staff. There's a lot of interesting work going on in your organization.
5: Yes, there is. Yeah, we're taking a a great look at CO2, Great Point Complex, and really looking at those spots that are most vulnerable to sea level rise and seeing what we can do in the future to make the properties more
0: adaptable going forward. Well, I have discovered that the foundation has a really fantastic science program, which obviously informs your conservation work. As the head of the organization, was it difficult to bring adaptation into your work? Not everyone makes that transition from conservation to adaptation that easily.
5: Yeah, exactly. Particularly with a land trust organization that's very highly focused on essentially just protecting open space and coming up with certain stewardship plans that protect biodiversity or enhanced endangered species habitat. For the land trusts that are on the coastal communities or other communities that are more susceptible to sea level rise, this is a conversation that has to start happening. Many of the inland land trusts are now talking about climate change and adapting to climate change issues. For us being on the coast, certainly a climate change adaptation issue is sea level rise. So as we brought this to the forefront, of our science goals and objectives. It's a transition, let's say. Certainly, it's a bit of a departure in terms of core rare endangered species protection, but it certainly is an aspect of the work that we do when it comes to the small ecozones or plant communities that need to be protected that are vulnerable to sea level rise.
0: And institutionally, and I think there's a lot of interest from other organizations, other small to medium-sized conservation groups, that what was that process like? Were the scientists saying, well, you know, we're reading a lot more about adaptation? How did you, was it a sort of a slow buildup? How did it kind of come into the org?
5: Definitely a slow buildup in terms of coming into the discourse through the staff, the science staff, and then through administration and our board of trustees. But the buzzword of coastal resiliency has been on the island, certainly for the past three, four years, and really has heated up in the past two, particularly as the local government starts getting a little bit more active in their analysis and their planning uh, for the future. So being the largest landowner on the island, the board of trustees certainly understood that We need to take a more active role in the discussion. As it relates to long-term protection of certain properties, there certainly is a a realization out there that we need to do more in terms of reviewing, but there is certain aspects of the long-term projects that may not actually have an endpoint where we actually are protecting those properties. We're going to have to prioritize certain properties that need to be protected. And other properties within our constraints might not be able to be protected in the long term because of the extremities of sea level rise.
0: So how are you as an organization integrating adaptation? You know, It's just a new emerging approach within your communication strategy. You're obviously wanting to communicate to the public out there.
5: Exactly. And this podcast, quite frankly, is, is one of those methodologies for us to actually get it out there more into the community. We're more participatory in meetings, whether at the government level, we are working on a a local committee that looks at cultural resiliency and it's an advisory committee to the actual government we are doing more as it relates to our press and working with the local news outlets and certainly we need to do some work in terms of reaching out to the membership and the community with different media whether it's radio video or this podcast as i mentioned before
0: what advice would you give other organizations as they are trying to go through this process of bringing in adaptation as a conservation strategy and everything that they do?
5: Probably first and foremost, it always starts with the strategic plan of that organization and where they want to be in three to five years, depending on the timeline of that strategic plan. And if climate change adaptation is certainly something that they would like to investigate and then maybe, maybe even have some actionable items that should be brought forth through the strategic plan through the discussions in terms of the creation or update of those strategic plans and then set out some clear measurable goals on how you'd like to attain some of those things
0: and so this is a partnership with the trustees of reservations what do you see as this continued partnership how do you guys see the going forward it, with that partnership
5: it's a good partnership in that it really highlights how there isn't necessarily a definitive bound in nature in terms of ownership and how the CO2 complex, even though it's owned by us and then some private in holdings, us being uh, the foundation and the trustees, and then the private in holdings being private property owners, just a few, in that we all have to somewhat work together if we're going to come up with certain strategies for the long term protection and stewardship of the area. And I think the partnership really highlights the beneficial possibilities of working with your neighbors, money, if not. All of these issues are not single or alone as they affect certain areas. They really are ecosystem-based and large-scale based, and they need multiple, multiple partners and multiple collaborators to actually get them off the ground.
0: Could you tell us your aspirational vision of what you see specifically for the Co2 Refuge and what you're doing here and just what makes you optimistic about all these things?
5: I think the the thing that makes me optimistic is that the actual discussion has now gone from just talking about the issue, but to actually employ actual plans and projects that are out there as it relates to not necessarily co2 great point but i'm starting to see other projects in place as it goes for other areas of the environment to to protect them based upon sea level rise one thing that i'd love to see going further and one of my my goals is how we can protect some of these very rare, not necessarily rare, but very vital and important areas such as salt marsh habitat. And I think that the protection of salt marsh habitat in the face of coastal sea level rise is probably going to be one of the number one marine-based issues going forward. And if we don't protect our salt marshes or give them areas to migrate to, we're going to have an amazing chain reaction of negative consequences going forward in terms of marine life, water quality, even buffering of inland areas. And I do have hopes that if we as land trust owners, the government, educational institutions put their heads together, that may be one aspect that we can make some inroads to. In terms of some of the lower lying areas, the uh, dune ecosystems and barrier beach ecosystems, I have hopes that over time we can protect certain areas. I do see some of the projection maps and, it, and it, it it's a little bit distressing to see what can happen over time for some of those areas. But I think that there are opportunities to protect the most vulnerable areas and most important areas over time. However, like I said, certain areas, no matter what, are going to be, are going to succumb to sea level rise. But I think at least now we are starting the analysis, the review. And we can put into place certain projects going forward that will have a long-term benefit.
0: Cormac, it's been a pleasure talking with you. It's this is the second and our two-part series of the you know this partnership with the trustees. You got you have some amazing staff. It's been a real treat interviewing them, learning their stories, and thanks again for everything that you're doing.
5: Great, thanks, Doug. Thanks for your time, and really appreciate being here.
0: Hey, Adapters. I'm here with Tom O'Shea. Tom is the Managing Director of Resources and Planning at the Trustees of Reservations. Hi, Tom. Welcome back to the
6: podcast. Hi, Doug. Great to be here again.
0: Well, Tom, we are closing out this fantastic episode talking to some of the staff at the Trustees and the Nantucket Conservation Foundation on the adaptation work that's going on out there. But I wanted to just close this episode talking to you and Cormac. And But just briefly, for those maybe people didn't listen to the first episode, can you remind people what you do again at the Trustees?
6: Sure, yeah. I oversee the programs that are really dedicated to our mission areas of resource care from our cultural resources, our natural resources, and our agricultural programs. So that also includes our Coast and Coastal Strategy, which I used to be the former director of Coast and Natural Resources for the trustees. With the work that you're doing with the trustees... What have been some of the biggest
0: challenges of integrating adaptation into work that you do and in the other staff members at the trustees? What are the big challenges?
6: Sure. The big challenges with everybody, really, not only our staff, but community, our partners, but is really a fluency around what, what does adaptation mean? What are the choices that we need to make? What are the strategies? What are we adapting to? And one of the harder things probably is at what point do we need to act and actually adapt, right? And so oftentimes what i start off with just to frame that conversation in talking about adapt- adaptation or adapting is I'll say, look, there's the sort of protection approach, which is resist against change. Adaptation is accommodating and responding and modifying what we do and how, how we manage our properties or how we care for our resources in, an, in a way that is accommodating the change. And then there's sort of accepting loss, which in some cases, right, we can't adapt because for whatever reason, we can't invest in it. Maybe there aren't options for helping the resources and adapting to change. Or the other is we retreat if you can actually move things away out of harm's way from climate change. And I try to frame it in that way. And it is a challenge just to get people's fluency around, oh, yeah, these are the choices we have to think about. All right. So if we're going to accommodate change in place where things are today, then what are those strategies? What, you know, and you need to sort of paint a picture, what can we do and what are the risks and, you know, and and then you have to kind of align the two together. And one thing, Doug, that's sometimes challenging, too, is actually people will wonder, well, how long will this last for? You know, how long will the adaptation last And that's always a good one because you have to sort of put that in terms of a timescale that people feel is reasonable. that can range from, well, you know, is it good for five years? Is that enough? Should it be good for a whole generation? How about for the resource? How long will it allow the resource to be more resilient or allow it to adapt? A lot of questions come up and all of it's challenging and we're all learning about it right now, Doug, right? So
0: that's our world. You have this partnership with the foundation and as you know, each group approaches adaptation a bit differently. And so I've been hearing from different voices from different, your two organizations, but even externally. And so it's a bit of sausage making when it comes to adaptation, but in regards to the work that you're doing with The Refuge and here on Nantucket Island, how are you aligning, you know, potentially two different approaches?
6: Yeah, so I I guess this is something that will evolve over time. And even if, you know, approaches seem a little different at first today, you know, that might change And especially as conditions change with storm surge and sea level rise or you know, impacts to the beaches, impacts to the harbor. So one thing that may be a little different approach is, right, is Nantucket Conservation Foundation is focused on their properties and focused on Nantucket, right? And we have a statewide view. And so that might lead to a difference in sort of scale and what we're thinking and how it fits our strategy. Then there's the town of Nantucket, right? And how does Co two and the Wildlife Refuge fit within, say, the context of managing Nantucket Harbor? And, you know, there's going to be questions about, right, Does the barrier beach really protect the harbor from storm surge and and increased impacts from flooding in the harbor area, which is really the heartbeat of their economy, right? And so that's going to come up. And what do we need to do to protect the beach to therefore protect the harbor? And do we need to dredge the harbor to help provide sand and nourishment and dune restoration on the beach, And so questions of scale and interdependencies between the town and NCF and and the trustees, you know, these are all things we have to work out. So I think it's going to be multiple conversations and looking at, you know, what are your objectives? How do those align with our objectives? Um, And it's just, this is the sausage making, as you said, Doug, that needs to happen. But the good thing is, is that we're actually working towards these things, you know, as opposed to just sort of waiting for things to happen. You know, I've always said on a timeline, if we can be doing adaptation conversations like this and starting to make choices now we're going to be a better position by 2030, let's say. And we need to, because by 2050, a lot of these options start to run out and the exponential change from climate change is really going to make it even that much harder to adapt. So it's all positive, even if it's sausage making.
0: I think the partnership that you have, even doing this podcast is a nice sign of the kind of adaptation collaboration that you're thinking of. So I think that's fantastic. Yeah. What advice would you give other organizations as they try to integrate adaptation into their existing work?
6: Well, there's sort of a general approach to it, I would say, is one, what are the resources you care about most? And you kind of list them out, right, from the highest significant resources or things that you care about and you value, you know, down to maybe the mid-tier and, and lower tier. Hard to do that for organizations, actually, Doug, because there, sometimes you you want to care for it all, right? But it's going to get harder and harder to do that. So you really kind of have that list of what's our most significant to maybe less significant. And then what are the risks associated with each of those as you go down the list? And then, okay, and this is essentially, Doug, what I'm telling you is what we did over the last five years as an organization for our coastal properties and our coastal resources. I mean, this is kind of what we did. And then... We figured out, all right, here are the most significant areas, most significant resources. What are the strategies? And that's where we're at right now at this point in the podcast. We just got a report from Woods Hole Group basically outlining, you know, here are your most four most vulnerable areas, and here's what you need to do to adapt to make those less vulnerable. And here's what it's going to cost you. This is the kind of, you know, scale of doing restoration and beach nourishment you're going to need. And so that's like your interventions. And I think, you know, for us right now, it's you need to just start that work. So an organization needs to just start in on an area where they think they can gain ground and start learning adaptation. What is the business of adaptation and what's involved in it by nature, right? It's going to require a, a long-term view, but not that long term 5 10 20 years really start need to know where you're headed and that could be everything from you know the coast or flooding to You know, heat, you know, issues with the growing issues of heat in cities or just dealing with droughts, fires, right, you know, all the different threats, increased precipitation, stronger storms, I think everybody's going to be impacted in some way. So often I say just know what your risk is, what you care about, and then start to become more fluent on adapting and just start adapting to some things, you know start getting into that kind of work, and then you'll start to see momentum build. You get better at it, more fluent at it, and you start to extend that adaptation. Yeah, this is going to be a learning thing for all of us, Doug. And I think we're not necessarily always going to get it right. And, you know, we just have to be Thoughtful about, okay, what are the different contingencies or trajectories that our adaptation could go here and be able to adjust mid course? And we're having to do that actually in a real world situation with our regulators because the state agencies, federal agencies, you know, want to know. Well, if you're going to do this, what are the unintended consequences that you might foresee and how are you going to manage those unforeseen, you know, unintended negative consequences? They're actually going to hurt what you're trying to care for, whether it's a marsh or a beach or whatever else it is. This is the tough part about adaptation work is it it does require changes in the environment sometimes, and it depends on the project.
0: So Tom, I asked the same question to Cormac, and we want to leave on a positive note. This is the end of the two-part series that we've been doing. What is your vision for the future when you're thinking about all these things that we've talked about in these two episodes?
6: My vision for the future is that we have a plan. We, ha- we have a vision, right? We have a vision that says, these are the areas we care about. We're going to commit to adapting and making these places that we care about resilient. Here's how we're going to do that. And here's why. And the why has to be pretty clear that we're doing this because we're trying to keep these places resilient and preserved into the future for the next generation or the next two generations or whatever that might be. We're providing options for the future, but the why is really important to keep ourselves motivated. You know, I think about my son, Brendan, and you know, I often talk to him because now he has an awareness of climate change and and uh, he'll ask me, yeah, what's it going to be like when I'm such and such an age, you know? And, and that to me is where he's basically asking me, what's your vision, dad, right? What's what's it going to be like? And this is what we need to start to articulate and illustrate and say, this is what it's going to look like. And this is what I want you to see when you're in my role or your generation's in charge now. Yeah, for me, I think that Co. Two is one of those areas that's right on the front lines of climate change on the coast. It's one of the most globally significant barrier beaches in the world just because of its geological formations, its uh, the species that are there. It's just an incredible place. I think it's worthy of our investment. And I'm really uh, encouraged that things are moving in the right direction on this project and in our attempts to really adapt Cosqueda uh, Couture Wildlife Refuge for the future, Doug.
0: Okay, Tom, it's been a pleasure working with you. This is the fifth episode that we've worked on. And I just it's, it's really been a great partnership with the Trustees of Reservations with America DAP. So thanks for all that you're doing. And thanks for collaborating with the podcast.
6: Absolutely. Thank you, Doug. Great working with you as well. And we look forward to the next time.
0: Okay, ADAPters, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that two-part journey to Nantucket Island. There's some amazing work going on there. I was really impressed with the science and adaptation planning integration happening, and hopefully it will serve as a model for other organizations going through similar stages. Since I recorded these interviews, Nantucket has been the subject of two recently released reports focused on coastal resilience, including the Trustees' State of the Coast Report and the Town of Nantucket's Draft Coastal Resilience Plan. Links to both are included in the show notes. Check them out and you'll get to see many of the ideas and concepts that were shared in these interviews. I want to take this opportunity to thank the Nantucket Conservation Foundation and the Trustees of Reservations. This podcast is being sponsored by an anonymous donor as part of an ongoing project between NCF and the Trustees to confront the climate-driven challenges faced by the Refuge. Thanks again. It's been a real treat working with your teams there. Special thanks to Christine Boyden at the Trustees and to Grace Hull at the Foundation for all your efforts behind the scenes. They were critical in recruiting guests and brainstorming the episode. Thanks, guys. Before we go, as I say in every episode, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Or if you have your own idea and funding for a sponsorship, let me know. Let's partner and tell your story. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. And the website is americadapts.org. Okay, adapters. Keep up the great work. I'll see you next
6: time.